0: It's Arjun here, the host of the Investigate podcast, also the head of research at Investigate Buyers Agency. Today's episode, we're actually chatting with Kane Jury, who's a buyer's agent at the Investigate team, and he's actually helped purchase close to 150 properties over the last 15 months. Why is that important to share? Well, that's because today's episode is gonna lean on his experience on five tips to help you nail your next purchase. Now, this is after you've actually figured out which markets you're in and wanting to look at. So these are actionable tips to ensure that you don't overpay, but you also don't focus on the little things that may not matter as much. Now, Kane's experience isn't just those professional purchases that I've talked about, but personally, he also has a portfolio of seven properties and was a client of investigates prior joining the team. He's ex-military and a mortgage broker in a prior career, which means he's jam-packed with insights, knowledge, and experience. Very lucky to have Kane not only on the show, but in the team, and I'm confident you'll get tremendous value from today's show. Now, one more thing, Kane does touch on due diligence key points and comparable analysis key points. So if you're in this episode and you're wondering, hey, I wanna get deeper in understanding that, I have a free resource that you'll be able to get for free to make sure you get to understand the exact checks we look at before buying, how we look at our comparable analysis methodology to be the same skill level as a valuer to ensure that you can get the purchase price right. And lastly, make sure that you understand cash flow and portfolio fit. If you want this resource, check it out. It's available on the show and uh, in the notes, you'll be able to get this link to that free resource. So tune into the episode and the chat that Kane and I have. Today we're talking five tips to get your next purchase right. And uh, as I mentioned in the intro, I'm joined by the magnificent Kane, who's one of our buyers agents here at Investikit. and. Why I think you should truly listen to Kane is not only his own personal experience of building a multi-property portfolio, but Kane, we must be getting close to 150 purchases over the last 12 to 15 months, based on how you're tracking, just for you individually.
1: Yeah, it's been an exciting journey, so I couldn't put a number, uh, an exact number on it, but um, it'd be approaching that 150 for um, 15 months. Um, so many. Uh, many purchases, many different conversations, many campaigns,
0: many properties assessed. It's um, it's been exciting. Awesome. Now, Kane, I know on the five tips we've got a few to run through. So, number one, we've been talking, you know, about due diligence, and we talk about this with our acquisitions team quite regularly, but also with clients. You know, why is due diligence so important to begin with when it comes to, you know, actually buying property and having this checklist that you've got that you go through? Yeah, so
1: we have a large due diligence checklist that we work through. We'll look at things like highways, not too close to an industrial area or a major power line. A lot of lenders have problems with mortgage insurance, especially with power lines. We don't want swimming pools. We don't want a bus stop on the porch. So we'll work through a due diligence checklist and it's simply assessing an asset against that checklist um, and then process of elimination.
0: And when it comes to the checklist... How do we come up with this, by the way? Because I know it's something you take immense pride in making sure before you present a property to a client, you've got all these things checked off. How do we come up with this checklist and you know what's some of the science behind it all?
1: Well, I guess the science all comes down to like, we'll have a look and um, say a, a property that's got um, on a major road and then we'll look at all the comparable sales on that major road. And assess the days on market against the days on market for the suburb, and then if we can see um, that road has maybe an extra two weeks days on market because it takes longer to sell because people there's not many people interested in buying that, then we can say okay, well that road is too large. Where we can assess another asset against uh, could be backing onto a park, but only a small park, and we'll, and we we'll look at the, the asset and the days on market and say, well, the days on market aren't impacted. It's the same as the suburb region, so we're not going to be too concerned about about that, where it could be a larger park with a big playground and then have a look and and be, the days on market backing onto this park is is much higher than the suburb average, so we'd stay away from it. So it's all about um, assessing how long it's going to sit on the market if we were to sell the asset.
0: Yeah, that's powerful, mate, because what you've done there is you've removed the whole individual preference and you put it back to a science. It's like, hey, if this is annoying you, or maybe you're not comfortable with this, but it shows that properties don't sell longer or sell for less or have campaigns that discount for more with this impactor, then really that blue wall that you've got doesn't really matter, right? It's more about We look at it back to discounting, pricing, and days on market. And that's how we came up with this whole list. And by the way, if anyone's tuning into this and going, hey, I want my hands on that list and I want to make sure that I avoid certain things that impact properties, um, we'll have it on a link in this podcast so you can grab a copy of this and uh, you'll be able to make sure that you can have the things that a professional acquisitions team, and in Kane's case, Uh, has on his standby buying over 100 plus properties in the last 12 months. So definitely a keen one. So that's tip number one, due diligence, the checklist around due diligence and some of the points that people have. What about comparable sales, Kane? I know that's another one we spoke about as tip number two. How important is nailing comparable sales? And what are some of the things that typically go through a buyer's mind when they're buying property?
1: It's only natural that a buyer wants to buy a property low. Obviously, we all love getting a bargain, whether that's in the, at the local shops. We all like um, something that's on sale. But when it comes to property, we don't like property that's on sale. Lobals are a bad indication, like if a label is successful is a bad indication of the market condition. So we want to use comparable sales and look at assets or properties that have sold in the last ideally one to four months, how much they sold for. And we sort of need to give it a rating because a property can be superior or inferior and once we look at how much it sold for, how long ago, apply a bit of market pressure to that and we get a maybe a handful of properties and we try and find something a little bit better, a little bit worse, something very similar and then sort of build our range out based on that. That's Once we have that range, we know where it's going to sell.
0: And you often hear buyers talk about not wanting to overpay. When buyers are in that stage of, I guess, not wanting to overpay, what are some of the typical behaviors you see from buyers that they just get wrong or they miscalculate or maybe it ends up making them take so long to be able to get that right one. Well, they let emotion come into science and it's never a
1: good mix, I guess. So um, if, if we've presented a range and we've found a property that's superior, another one that's slightly superior, one that's a similar, slightly inferior and inferior, we can nail a, a very close range of what that's going to go for. And whether the, if the range is 500 to 520, the only impact on whether it's, that's our fair value, the only impact once we've built that range on comparable sales is the campaign for that property. So whether there's five other offers, two other offers, nine other offers, that's the impact of where we're gonna land within that range. But it's common for a buyer to say, oh, I know your range is 500 to 520, Kane, but let's just see if we can get it at 510 max. Um, but there's no science in that. That's the emotion talking.
0: Yeah, I love I love how you talked about separating that. And one thing that you've mentioned a couple of times is that superior and that inferior. And that's such a good point to mention because you're almost creating like a bit of a hamburger sandwich saying, I don't think this is going to go for less than that. Because if it is going to go for less than that, we're going to you know possibly be in the wrong market because we keep buying stuff worse than inferior properties, which therefore means it's declining. But then at the same time, I don't think it's going to go for more than that because we're trying to make sure we don't overpay. And so I often see people in the real estate sales just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and almost finding reasons not to pay a certain price because they think it must be less than that. But like you said, they haven't applied a science of it should be inferior than this and it should be are better than this one, and therefore a range gets created. Now, Kane, when you are looking for creating a range, what are some of the things that buyers should pay attention to when they are looking to rate a property? Like things that you look out for. I
1: guess we want to we'll look at like the interior of the property and assess the kitchen, bathroom, living, size of rooms, floor plan layout. Then we'll look at the exterior of the property, um, the size of the yard, where the house is located on the actual property and the functionality of the of the backyard and the front yard. We'll look at um, obviously the market recency, which we just touched on. We'll look at just the neighbourhood as a whole and um, the land size. So there's some key components of the property that we assess and that's when we're doing that comparable Assessment versus other assets, and is it superior or inferior? And comes to that overall rating.
0: And when it comes to the overall rating, for anyone that's really understanding why we go it through this way, that's what valuers do, right, Kane? So valuers say the same wording. They say, hey, this one is superior, this one's inferior. They looked at interior, exterior, neighborhood, land size, recency. So all of these things coming together is where comparable analysis comes in. Now, on comparable analysis, Kane, when buyers are sitting there and taking three, six months to buy, is that normal? Because from our perspective, we don't see that as normal, right?
1: No, so one because we're obviously got the team building and we're like assessing due diligence and doing our comparable so we know what it's going to sell for and then it's just a matter of can we get it? So just because we say property's worth five hundred, five twenty doesn't mean we're gonna get it because we're buying in growing markets. So it's very common for us to miss at the top of our range. Like just last weekend, I missed two bidding at the top of our price range because there was that much heat in the market. A couple of um, buyers were, were over the top of our range, being that they were more emotional and they hadn't assessed it. But I guess having that comparable assessment puts us in the right range to be buying that property. If we're constantly at the low end of the range or underneath the range, we're missing out on properties because they're selling and then we're sitting on the sidelines for so long and then that opportunity cost of not getting into that growing market becomes an issue where we've been sitting on the sidelines for six months because we're not appropriately assessing the price of, of a property and if we're on the sidelines for six months and the market's moving at one a month on 500000 the math can be worked out of what that that um, has cost you.
0: And I guess a big part of what people get stuck on is the actual campaign. And that leads me to tip number three. So when we're talking about comparable sales and campaigns, Kane, there's our range, which is comparable analysis. And that's something you nail time and time again. But then there's the agents range and buyers get lost between the two comparable analysis range and agent range. How can people look at campaigns differently rather than just the price tag?
1: Yeah, so we look at uh, the campaign and the the sales agents are running for that property. Um, Some will have a price guide and it's not uncommon for an agent to have a lower price guide because they want to draw more attraction and people through the open home. Some will have just offers over. But we don't get too caught up in the campaign that the agent's running because we're always referring back to our comparable analysis and we'll have our price range before we even open the discussion with the agent. So we know in our head what it's worth and what it's going to sell for. Um, And it's just a matter of can we secure it or not. So we're not overly absorbed in the agent's campaign, I guess.
0: That's so different to what a a typical buyer thinks, right? They look at it as a, hey, I'm I'm looking at the price tag and I want cheaper than price tag. But they may not realize that that's not really the true price tag. That's a game being played to attract a lot of buyers through. I mean, I just think of uh, Adelaide during the last 12 months. So, Kane, when it comes to buyers and tips for understanding campaigns, where do you first start?
1: Yeah, it's about asking the right questions to the agent. So, some buyers going direct to an agent might be asking where the offers are at, where the price n- needs to be. But the agents trying to drive the price up for the vendor, and there, you know, there's always going to be oh, we've got a couple more offers coming in. So, we like to ask appropriate questions of the agent and um, like a closing date if there are multiple offers, you know things is there an interest in the in the vendor renting the property back after sale so they can then purchase elsewhere and they're not got time constraints. but it's about I guess getting an understanding of the campaign and asking appropriate
0: questions. So Kane, the next tip that you've talked about in property buying and tips for buyers to nail the next purchase, it's actually something many people are getting caught up in right now and it's cash flow, rental yields, interest rates. So far, when people are doing cash flow assessments, the picture's not that pretty. But somehow, when you go back to their portfolio planning, the picture's really exciting over the long term. What's the difference between the two? Like, what makes people start to go, hey, I should be okay riding out this cash flow and why you think that's an important point?
1: I guess it's important to look at what the market's doing and what the cash flow is going to be like in six months, nine months, 18 months, 24 months, not get caught up in what it is right now. Um, interest rates are moving, but while interest rates are moving, it's transitory, not permanent. So they will stabilize, um, which is a big impact on the cash flow of the property. But as well as price in a growing market, price generally moves first and then rents will lag and follow an increase. So we have to have that little bit of tolerance on a on a lower yield, I guess, to get into that growing market, but the yield on entry is not the same as what the yield will be permanently in the portfolio. And then mapping that out, our purchase price is obviously locked in for the entire period that we own the property, but our rent's not locked in. So that's why having that little bit of um, tolerance on a lower yield is important, so we can get into that growing market. We could always go to a market that's got a nice juicy, attractive yield, but if it's not going to grow in value, it's not going to rent for a good amount that's not going to rent nice and quickly. It's not a very good fit for the portfolio. So it's always good to revert back to the portfolio, the mapping, the plan, what's our minimum yield on our projections of our portfolio. Once we know what that minimum yield is, if it's 4%, for instance, and we're looking at an asset that's 4.4, it ticks that box, let's move forward. The holding cost might not be the prettiest, but it's going to get a lot prettier as time goes by and we and the market does the heavy lifting.
0: That is such a powerful point. Yield on purchase price, right? The purchase price is locked in. You know, you, you aren't purchasing the property that's for 450 today if you've already bought it again at 500 tomorrow or the year after 520. You've bought it for 450. And so the yield that goes up is going to continue to go up due to rental pressure. And that's interesting, right? Because The one thing I noticed, Kane, is that as soon as you talked about is it above the minimum needed for your plan, all of a sudden people look at that 4.1 and it's above their 4% and they go, no, I want 5.5 now because I'm not happy with that cash flow. Well, the unintended consequence of this for any buyers out there is if you've got 10 amazing cities that you feel your portfolio could have for capital growth, the engine driver, right? Like that is what's really gonna push you towards your goal. You're gonna look at it and go, well, now I have to only choose from one city, maybe two that only offers me above that certain yield. And that is when you start to restrict your options and what may take you one month to buy a property now takes you six months because you're only searching across one market. So it's such a powerful point, Kane, because people forget that the yield will change. Rental pressure will change and you can go the best calculators, the best cash flow sheets feel happy about it, but what's more important is your twenty-year cash flow sheet as the rents change and your debt goes down, not your cash flow sheet of just today.
1: Yeah, and it's like if we limit ourselves to that one market this week, if we were buying and nothing passes that due diligence checklist that we that we mentioned, we we can't go for anything. And then that might happen if we because we're limited so much to one market at that five point two you mentioned. If nothing passes due diligence, we can't buy because we don't want to buy something that's got that 5.2% yield if it's on a main road or got power lines hanging over. So it's important to keep our, our broad market search because it must pass due diligence and that's why having that yield tolerance that I mentioned is is critical because when we actually map out our portfolio and have a look at the next 30 years and we can see yield on portfolio but we can see our, our yield on purchase price is going to fr- forever be increasing because that's locked in. So. It's always important to look at the projections of of the portfolio and not get caught up in that one moment of of yield on, yield at um, entry.
0: Very important, mate. And When it comes to what matters and what matters it doesn't matter in a portfolio. Final tip: We often get you know some interesting thoughts from clients on bedrooms, bathrooms, color of walls. Now they didn't make your due diligence checklist, right? So. What really matters and doesn't matter when it comes to investing and how that can help a buyer nail their next purchase?
1: Yeah, so when we look at um, like a good example is the three bedroom, one bathroom versus the four bedroom, two bathroom, the property gods don't come in and say, hey, Mr. Three bedroom, one bathroom, you're not going to grow in value. They'll both grow in value because it's the, I guess, the research and the data behind that suburb that creates the growth. We just want to make sure that we revert back to our comparable analysis and don't Pay, overpay for the three bedroom one bathroom. We want to use other comparables to see what the three bedroom one bathroom is worth in that suburb. Versus using the same comparables for a four bedroom two bathroom. While we want to use a four bed four bath comparable and a three bed three bath a three bed one bath comparable to make sure that we pay appropriately for those and they'll grow in value with the suburb accordingly.
0: Yeah, it's like it's not like the soil looks up at the building and goes, "Hold on a minute." You, you freaking put down an extra bedroom and bathroom. I love this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna grow more for you, and just everything's gonna go much better here in this land. It's so true, Kane. It just doesn't happen, right? And, and I think that's such a big part of what matters and what doesn't matter, because if you're gonna go with comparable sales, and you're gonna pay the right price for it, it's gonna grow in in value anyway, right? And so, Kane, I think when it comes to these. These five tips, it's like a recap of due diligence to begin with, just to make sure you're avoiding any certain things that impact days on market. There's comparable sales and how you can avoid being overpaying, but also avoid sitting there and missing out on properties constantly and trying to find a sweet balance using superior and inferior properties to find that middle point. Understanding the campaigns was tip number three. Love that one in terms of just making sure you don't fall in love with the agent's campaign and where it should be priced. But more so think of comparable sales first and then get a understanding of where the campaign is. Cash flow, really today, it's not about just today's cash flow because that will change over time. Once you've got your portfolio plans cash flow ready, you can work towards those parameters rather than trying to rule out 10 cities and just focus on one because it's got a certain yield. And lastly, what matters and doesn't matter, bedrooms and bathrooms are a a great example. Just to wrap up, Kane on those five tips, are there anything else that you find out there that does matter, doesn't matter as much that buyers maybe pay too much attention to as they're going about securing their next property i think having the
1: plan and a visualization of what the plan is um it's easy to get caught up um i need to buy 10 properties but do you like is five going to tick your box for your long-term plan and i guess looking at that acquisition window of the overall plan and buying in the right market and having a compressed acquisition window letting time in the market do the work and it's kind of having that that plan is piecing these five tips all together and the right execution of the plan.
0: Yeah, property planning 101, right? It's coming back to that, not about this number out in the wall, 10 properties, 10 years. We hear them too often on the the ads. And so as a result, people get hooked onto it. For anyone that's tuning into this and thinking, hey, you know, I'm, I'm keen to catch up with Kane and jump onto, you know, getting some professional support from buying, just reach out for a consultation. You can jump in on Kane's personal website, which is kanejury.com.au and uh, get to connect with him or even just learn more about some of these uh, due diligence and comparable sale tips, which is a, a resource we'll chuck into this podcast so you can and go and get a copy of that. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of the Investigate podcast and today's episode all about five tips for buying your next property.